The Apostle Paul said in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Listen again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is the beginning of the the doxology at the end of this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11, in which Paul explains that God's plan for Israel as a nation isn't finished yet. He's not done with them. And in the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, this doxology, where he's saying the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the context is that he's speaking of the divine right of God to decide who is saved and who is not. That's what he's speaking of. And this is overwhelming to Paul to try to grasp this. And so that's why he says how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways and while Paul is bowled over by the height and the, the breadth and the depth of the wisdom of God in saving who he will save, Paul still remains, really, I would say, our greatest example of truly understanding the gospel of Christ and the interplay between prayer and the proclamation of the gospel and God's sovereign work of, over salvation. How does that work? And so I'd have you turn to First Timothy chapter 2. And today we're going to complete our look at evangelistic prayer in a healthy church. We've given reasons for evangelistic prayer. The first reason we said was it is to help ourselves. 1 Timothy 2, 1, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We also said that evangelistic prayer is to please God. Verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is to help ourselves, evangelistic prayer is to please God. We also said it is to trust the gospel Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so today we're going to finish with one more reason, and that is to follow greatness. To follow greatness. To walk in the footsteps of the greatest churchman ever. To walk in the footsteps of the greatest evangelist ever. To walk in the footsteps of the greatest pastor and shepherd in the history of the church none other than the author of first timothy the apostle paul and so this morning we'll consider verse seven for this i was appointed a preacher and an apostle i am telling the truth i am not lying a teacher of the gentiles in faith and truth Now, we've been applying this teaching over the past weeks in several ways. We have our prayer boards in the back of the the hallway behind the sanctuary for you to put up names and and to write down names for us to be praying for. You have filled up those boards. You're praying for them. We're thankful for that. We're going to leave those up for a couple of more months. We figure we can't have too much prayer. We've also challenged the head of homes. We've challenged you to pray in your homes for your evangelistic list, which you can take from that board as well. I'd like to extend that challenge. If you were the head of your home, I would challenge you to keep that running list of evangelistic prayer, those who need to be saved, and pray for them throughout the rest of the year. Let's do that. Why not? Why wouldn't we do that? And also in our small groups, I would encourage you to continue praying for the lost. Make that a normal part of your prayer time together. Your small group might even be a way that a lost person might be able to hear the gospel. Some might not be comfortable coming to church yet, but they'll come to your living room and they'll come and enjoy some fellowship with some of your Christian friends. But what a tremendous example we have in Paul. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. The teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He says, for this, I was appointed. What is he speaking of here? Is he speaking of the gospel? Verses five and six. There's one God, one mediator between God and me and the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's what he's been set apart for. That's what he's been appointed for. And he's been appointed as a preacher. And in the New Testament, this term here, Russo, this is a, a, an important term for preaching. 
It's the same root word as in 2 Timothy 4.2, to preach the word. And it means to be a herald. It's, it's not a word we use much anymore. But this was somebody in the ancient Near East who would shout out information. Ironically, we're having to do that this morning. You would shout out news. You would shout out business deals, goods for sale, job opportunities. And the ancient herald had two jobs. This was all he was to do. The first one is have a loud voice. And the second one is represent the message of his master accurately. The herald didn't get to change the message. And so Paul says he is a preacher. He is a herald to, ra- to, to radically bring the gospel everywhere he can and do so accurately and with a voice that is heard. He also says he's an apostle. This is a word that means a messenger, a special delegate. Now, in the New Testament, the word apostle is used in two ways. There's the non-technical sense, anyone who is a delegate of God, and that's a general sense. But here, Paul uses it in the very technical sense of one who has been chosen by Christ personally, appointed by Christ, and who is a personal witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is. We don't have apostles anymore. We don't need them. Because we have what they wrote, their inspired writings, which Acts 2.42 calls the apostles' teaching. And so we have all that the apostles meant for us to have. And a little interesting note here, in your Bibles, this sentence is probably in parentheses. He says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. Why would he have to say this? Well, throughout the church, there were some opponents of Paul and For example, those in the Corinthian church had called into question his apostleship and his ministry. And so he throws in this little note. Hey, I'm telling the truth here. This is what I've been called to. And what has he been called to? He's been called to be, he says, a teacher of the Gentiles. The apostle Paul, the great Jew who formerly took pride in his heritage alone. Philippians 3 says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to, the, to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so he is the Jew of all the Jews. And yet God has called Paul to spread the gospel beyond the Jews. Now, why does he say this right here? What's the connection? Why is he highlighting this part of his ministry? Well, the connection is very simple. He says in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Listen, to the Jew who has been brought up in his home to believe that he should look down on Gentiles, their Gentile king, the Gentiles in authority over them, This was a bitter pill to swallow. And Paul reminds them, I am an apostle to the Gentiles to bring the gospel to them. And so when Paul says he's an apostle to the Gentiles to proclaim as a herald, as a preacher to them, the good news of Jesus Christ, he's obeying his own admonition. He's saying, I'm not a hypocrite in this. I am bringing the gospel to those who need to hear. And so the apostle Paul stands for us as as an example an example of absolute greatness for us to follow in that he simultaneously holds to the sovereignty of God over salvation, and yet he he expended his life in prayer, he expended his life in proclamation, he expended his life in suffering. Why? For the sake of the lost. Now, somebody pointed out to me and maybe thought it was an accident, but it wasn't. You've probably noticed in this short series that the issue of divine election and human responsibility has been a recurring theme. This has been coming up. Well, why is that? Well, very simply, at the very core of the act of praying for the lost, listen carefully, at the core of the act for praying for the lost is the belief that God must intervene, that God must act for someone to be saved. And probably not many of you sitting here, but more of you may be watching online. You may be a lifelong Arminian, You've been led to believe that mankind has a truly free will and is capable of choosing God, that human depravity does not prevent that free choice. And listen, I don't doubt for one moment your genuine desire to see the lost come to faith in Christ. And and we applaud that and we stand in lockstep together in that desire. But let me ask you a question. 
if human free will was enough, then why, why, why would God have the Apostle Paul tell us to pray for the lost, to ask God to do what? To intervene. Why have ten thousands upon ten thousands of mothers begged God for the souls of their children? Why, when a loved one has turned their back on the gospel and refused to even listen to you anymore, why do we fall into the soft, loving arms of our Heavenly Father and beseech Him and beg Him to intervene? If you believe in free will, why do you ask God to miraculously contradict the free will of the one who will not come to faith? The one who's running for, from Christ. If you truly believed in human free will, and I don't think anybody actually does who's a Christian. If you truly believed in human free will, why do you not respect that and say to your unsaved son, if you want to reject Christ and go to hell, I respect that decision. Nobody ever says that. No, we beg God to intervene. We say, this is my son and he won't come to the to, to the cross. We want him to intervene. We want him to interfere. God, intrude. Impose yourself on him. And in those moments of desperation, we do see and we experience the awful truth of Romans 3, 11, and 12. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. And the most staunch Arminian on planet Earth will fall to his knees to beg God's mercy on the lost. Because he says, this is my girl. This is my boy. Would you save him? Now, no one would ever accuse Paul of being what some have called a hyper-Calvinist. Hyper-Calvinism is that unbiblical idea that since God is going to save the elect anyway, we don't have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. We don't have a responsibility to tell them to repent and turn from their sin. Nobody would ever accuse Paul of that. To finish our time in this evangelistic prayer series, what I'd like to do and to really just show you the Apostle Paul as our example, I want to show you his example of greatness by asking two questions and then letting Paul answer them. The first question is, what did Paul do? And the second question is, what did Paul believe? What did he do and what did he believe? Let's answer the first question. What did Paul do? Short answer, Paul labored to bring the lost to Christ. What did Paul do? Paul labored to bring the lost to Christ. I want the impact of how consistent Paul was in his incredible labors for the gospel to be as tangible to you as possible. And so we're going to do a little Bible study today. The visitor's desk at the front has band-aids if you cut your fingers but we're going to go to a lot of places in the bible if you're a note taker you don't really need to take a lot of notes you might just write down some references because by the time we're done it will be self-explanatory we're going to take a little tour through the heart of the new testament to answer the question what did paul do turn with me to romans chapter 10 and in romans 10 paul here is going to make it extremely clear that men of God such as himself have a human responsibility to the lost. Romans 10, verse 13. Is that not a great sound? The Bible's turning. And I know some of you are using your phone. You're not quite as holy as the rest, but that's okay. (laughs) Romans 10, verse 13. What is the responsibility For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then he summarizes this progression in verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you ask Paul, could people get saved without preaching? He would say, no. No, the human work of preaching is vital. It's important. Yes, preaching is a divinely empowered event. When the word of Christ, when the gospel is held forth. But it is nevertheless something that Paul must do. Preachers must be sent. And how Paul yearns to see the lost saved, in particular his fellow Jews. Look with me at chapter 11 of Romans. Romans 11, verse 13, Paul's yearning translates into a desire 
to do all he possibly can to see his lost Jewish brothers saved. Romans eleven thirteen. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He wants to magnify his ministry, uh, literally in Greek, glorify it. And in this context, though, it means to multiply something. That every sermon preached needs to have ripple effects far beyond the original presentation. What is he saying he's hoping for? He's hoping that as he is the apostle to the Gentiles and his fellow Jews see Gentiles getting saved and coming to their Messiah, that maybe some of the Jews will be jealous and say, I want to be a worshiper of Messiah also. Turn with me to Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 20, because as a matter of fact, Paul had a very, very lofty dream when it came to multiplying his preaching efforts. It's a big dream. Listen to Paul's big dream, Romans 15, 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He wants to go where the gospel has never been. I can relate to this. I preached the gospel for a dozen years in Central Texas. You know what you have in Central Texas? Everybody's been to church. Everybody's been baptized. Everybody's been saved. Everybody's a member of church. There are 4,527 churches in a town with 200 people. (laughs) Preaching the gospel there is difficult because they all know who Jesus is. And Paul says, I want to go where When I say the name Jesus, they say, who is that? That's his ambition. That's a big dream. He wants to be part of the prophecy of Isaiah 52, verse 13. And he quotes it here in verse 21. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. And how is this gospel work to be multiplied? How will Paul preach to magnify, multiply his ministry And go where the name of Christ has never been heard. The whole point of our whole series, prayer. Prayer for his ministry. Look in the same chapter, chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He asks the Romans to strive with him in prayer for the sake of the ministry. And how do you pray for the lost? One of the ways you pray for the lost is pray for those who are proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Now, Paul was grounded in this core belief, a core belief into which he threw everything he had, turned to the very end of Romans, probably on the same page for you. The doxology and blessing at the end, verse 25 of chapter 16 What is his core belief? Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you see the connection? Check it out. Verse 25. The preaching of Jesus Christ into verse 26 brings about what? The obedience of the faith. He is all in when it comes to preaching. That is his core belief. Next book over, turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 8, right near the end of the book. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church from the city of Ephesus. He's updating the Corinthians on his ministry plan. And this is still under the heading of what does Paul do? And he's explaining why he's staying in Ephesus. This is where he is when he's writing to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Here's his reason. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, the implication, of course, is that God has opened this wide door for effective service, which includes dealing with adversaries of the gospel in no way. In no way do you ever get the sense from Paul that he says, oh, well, God's just going to save whom he chooses anyway. We'll just chill in Ephesus for a while and take it easy. No, there's a battle. 
and he's getting ready to get in it. There's an open door, and he's going through that door so that he can be engaged, he can be involved, he can be a part. Next book over, first chapter of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1 might be on the same page for you. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. Paul is writing the Corinthians once again. Now he's defending the authenticity of his ministry. And one of the defenses that he gives is how he suffered for the sake of the ministry. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. What suffering has Paul gone through? You don't have to turn there, but just listen from chapter 11. He gives a list. Five times he's been lashed by city authorities. He's been beaten with, with rods three times, stoned and left for dead once, shipwrecked three times, danger from journeys, rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger from false brothers. He's hungry, he is thirsty, sometimes without food, and at times exposed to the elements without adequate shelter. And he says, on top of all that, I feel the pressure and the concern of all the churches. That doesn't sound like someone who passively believes that God will save the lost with or without his efforts, does it? Next chapter over, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. What does Paul view as the work of the Christian in the world? He gives this beautiful, very simple analogy. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What a beautiful picture. We are the fragrance of Christ to all people. And whom God will save is not our concern. It is not our purview. It is not our domain. We are simply to be the fragrance of Christ. And how are we the fragrance of Christ? By telling of him. Verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity is commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. That's how we tell the truth. Go with me to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. I think it's reasonable to say that if Paul believed that the role of the Christian was passive in nature, that we simply sit back and unresponsively act as observers to God's work in the world, if we're just watching what's going on, I think you would think that maybe Paul would just go through the motions. I'll just be a vocational preacher. I'll collect my retirement and find a nice little place in in South Florida when I'm done. That's not his attitude. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What is Paul's attitude in his preaching, in his ministry? It is to persuade. It's a, it's a word that means to convince someone. It's a word that means to train you to trust. It's an urging. There's no sense in which he says, hey, you know, Jesus is a great guy, wonderful God and Savior. Hope you come to him. See you next week. No, he's urging. He's pleading. He's begging. The book of Romans records that Paul even says if he could trade his own salvation in for those of his Jewish brothers, he would do so. That's persuasive. And as we saw earlier in the book, Paul has the proof of his yearning to convince in that he's willing to suffer for that privilege to preach the gospel. Go to the next book over, Galatians chapter 6, right near the end of the book. Galatians 6, 17, Paul writes to the Galatian churches. He's issuing a a corrective. They've strayed from the gospel of grace. They've begun proclaiming a legalistic version of the gospel, which he says in chapter 1, there's no gospel at all. And many of the Galatian believers had turned on Paul. They'd rejected him. They were causing trouble for him. But he reminds them of of his right to preach into their lives, to speak truths to them. Galatians 6, 17 From now on, let no one cause me trouble. And here's his reason. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul has earned by his scars of persecution the right to be respected for his tremendous sacrifice to proclaim Christ. Turn with me to the next book over, Ephesians chapter 3. 
How does Paul understand the work of the ministry? Is the preached word just a formality? Is it a, is it a show? Is it a sham? It doesn't really matter since God is sovereign over salvation anyway. It's, it's just kind of something we go through. Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Did you catch this? Paul believes his job is to enlighten and to bring to light Verse 9, this mystery hidden for ages. He is the means by which the unsearchable riches of Christ are now imparted. No, it's not a show. It's not a sham. It is real. And those who are called to do so are to equip all the saints to bring the light to men. All the saints are to do this. Next chapter over, chapter 4, verse 11 And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And what's the result of the faithfulness of the church to spread the gospel? The church is spiritually spiritually built up in verse 12. And now the church is numerically built up. Verse 16. At the very end, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Sometimes it feels like a, a holy and righteous thing to say, I don't care if the church grows. Really? Jesus said, I will build my church. We let the Lord do, obviously, what he's going to do, but you should care that the church grows. You should care that people bring the lost to hear the gospel. This is such a beautiful system. You, all you have to do is tell your neighbor, come to church, I'll buy you lunch. That's it. How many words is that? Come to church, I'll buy you lunch. Seven words. And bring him here. And we'll preach the gospel to them. God's been building his church for 2,000 years with that. And this ministry work, once again, is empowered by God. How? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul knows the key to effective ministry. He knows where the power really is. Chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end... Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Here it is. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He knows where the power is. This isn't just evangelistic prayer. This is prayer for the evangelist. Now, rightly so, Paul sees the gospel work as a working partnership, a working partnership among the saints. Next page over, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is very much a a thank you letter to the Philippian church for their partnership in the gospel. They have financially supported Paul very, very faithfully. And look how he views this gospel work. Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very from the first day until now. And then you go to chapter four. You don't have to turn there, but it's it's devoted to Paul saying, wow, how generous you were. We're partners together. The Philippian church knows how Paul toils at the ministry and it's a work. It's a partnership. It's something that is done. Paul explains this dynamic to the Colossian church as well. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Next book over. Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. Paul knows that what he's been given is a stewardship. It's a responsibility. It's something that he is to do. Colossians 1 25. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And he works very hard at this stewardship. Verse that you're familiar with, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, 
that he powerfully works within me. It is a toil. It is a, it is a work. Look with me at chapter 4 of Colossians. Again, Paul is aware that his work must be supernaturally galvanized. It must be energized. So he requests prayer from the saints at Colossae. You know, if the Apostle Paul walked in here by some time machine or something and he came up and said, would you pray for me? I think he's the last person we would think we need to pray for. Because we would read, oh, Paul, do you, you know, have you seen what you're going to do? And yet he requests prayer. Look at Colossians 4, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul, the author of half of our New Testament, asking for prayer, could you help me, God, to be clear in what I say? This is prayer for the lost and for Paul's ministry to them. 1 Thessalonians 1, probably the other page over. Paul's ministry was beginning to bear fruit and that many believers are now doing what I'm telling you to do and that is imitating him, imitating his ministry. And he, he rejoices in this. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This isn't passive hyper-Calvinism. This is a church that is working. They worked hard to get the gospel beyond their own little church. Why? Because they had the great privilege of sitting under the preaching of the Apostle Paul for how long? About three months is all they got. And that was enough time for them to say, we're going to be like him. And they spread the gospel like wildfire, imitating Paul. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church in chapter 3. Very consistently here, Paul never, ever takes for granted the heavenly power source of any of his success in ministry. And I would say that 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 is the quintessential evangelistic prayer. This is evangelistic prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. What a great prayer. Let the word of the Lord speed ahead. I, I pray that prayer similar to that. I pray that before I ever ascend these steps into this pulpit, that your hearts are already plowed and ready for seed. That's what it means for the word to speed ahead. Now, we've already seen Paul stressing evangelistic prayer in our main passage in 1 Timothy 2, but what about the second letter to Timothy? Turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. Will Paul finally say, Hey, Tim, old pal, don't stress out. God's chosen all the saved, so just ride the wave. Just enjoy. What do you think? 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. This is Paul putting Timothy under oath. This is him like you would do with a small child, grabbing his head and saying, look in my eyes. By all that is holy, you will preach the gospel. And this preaching is to be a work. What else does he tell him to do? Verse 5 he says, do the work of an evangelist. Work and evangelism, they go together. There's an effort, there's an exertion. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Next book over, Titus has been sent by Paul to the island of Crete to appoint uh, elders in the fledgling churches there. And what will Paul's ministry emphasis be for Titus? Titus 1 verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The truth of the gospel is manifested how? Through work, through preaching. And this preaching is to be authoritative. Titus chapter 2, the very last verse, verse 15. What is preaching to be like? He says in Titus two fifteen, 
Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. One of my favorite words to use when I'm preaching is the word listen. I don't do that to you in a one-on-one conversation. We're not talking about how the Dodgers did last year and say, hey, listen right now, because we're not preaching. But when the word of God is being proclaimed, Titus is told, declare these things with all authority. What about Paul's little letter to Philemon? Next page over. You might say, oh, this is just a personal letter. No way is there any theology in here. Want to bet? Paul is writing his friend Philemon at the church of Colossae to commend commend to him a runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from Philemon. He had gotten saved when he met Paul, and now he was being sent back. And at the end of the letter, Paul expresses a desire to personally come to Colossae to perform effective ministry. But what does he need to carry out this ministry? What does he need to see God work in him in the church of Colossae? Verse 22, right near the end of the little letter. Verse 22, Paul says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Through your prayers, the ministry of the word will come. Through your prayers, I will proclaim the gospel to the lost in Colossae. Through your prayers, we will see God do great things. Let me ask you a question. Would anybody dare accuse Paul of being a hyper-Calvinist? Of passively believing that there's no human effort involved in bringing about the salvation of men? This man lost his life for this work. He lost his life for the sake of spreading the gospel and the themes were always the same. Pray for the lost, pray for the ministry, preach the word and suffer all things necessary to see the gospel spread. From all 13 books that Paul wrote, what did Paul do? Paul labored to bring the lost to Christ. Second question, what did Paul believe? Short answer, Paul believed in the sovereignty of God over salvation. God is sovereign. Some of you have already guessed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to go faster. Again, there are band-aids at the visitor center for any paper cuts incurred during this sermon. Romans 1.16. What did Paul believe? This great declaration of where the power of salvation truly lies he says in 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me read it again and put the proper emphasis. Listen carefully. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the gospel message itself. Verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Do you understand that the true Arminian belief that says that humanity can, without the help of God, make an intellectual choice to turn to God? That's not what Paul says. They suppress the truth. They have a debased mind. It can't be done. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Mankind cannot possibly turn to God on his own. He's not capable. We couldn't do it. How about this question? Someone might say, well, Nah, I don't believe you. I I turned to God on my own, and when I came to God, then he paid the penalty for my sins. You have to make that adjustment in light of your belief that salvation started when you made the decision. That's not when God paid the penalty for your sins. Turn to Romans 5. When did God pay the penalty for your sins? Was it the moment you prayed a prayer? Was it the moment you made an intellectual decision? Was that when your sins were paid for? Was that when the check, as it were, was written to God? to pay the penalty for sin, or maybe it's still in process. Look at Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
payment was rendered long before you were born. And why is this possible? Why could God pay for your salvation before, long before you even existed? Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9.22, we'll let Paul explain. Why could your salvation be paid for long before you? Romans 9.22, and he asks a rhetorical question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory the people prepared for destruction this is a passive verb by by the way it means they prepared themselves for destruction because of their own guilt and glory the people prepared for mercy and glory their own guilt and sin rather those who are prepared for mercy prepared for glory They're prepared by God, active verb. He's the one doing it. He chose them. That's why salvation can be paid long before you existed. Turn to Romans 11, verse 28. In Romans 11, Paul will use Israel as an example of God's electing prerogative, his right to elect and his faithfulness to the elect. Romans 11, 28, speaking of Israel, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, when God elects, he never undoes that, ever. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. The Christian enjoys fellowship with God. And it might be tempting to say, well, I I saw that fellowship with God could be a good thing. And so I decided to get into that fellowship Who initiated this fellowship? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who called you into fellowship? God did. He called you to fellowship with him. Near the end of the chapter, verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Did you get the emphasis here? God chose, God chose, God chose. It's a good thing, too. Because look at 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, verse 12. It's a good thing that God chose. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Did you catch that? You couldn't understand anything until the spirit enabled you to do so. And if you think he's not clear enough there, look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person cannot, of his own so-called free will, intellectually comprehend his need for salvation. Can't do it. And the result of the fact that God chose and God opened the mind to understand is the making now of a new spiritual person. Look with me at chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, last week I mentioned a sermon by the... 19th century evangelist Charles Finney in 1831. And he made a claim that a person may convert himself in this sermon. That was the basis for his whole ministry. Is that true? Can a person convert himself? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And someone might say, well, yeah, that's a decision I made. I decided to become a new creation in Christ. Really? Verse 18. All this is from God. It's from God. Turn to Galatians 1. These churches sliding into legalism. God reminds them of how they received salvation in the first place. Let me tell you what legalism is. In a very short definition is that legalism is a misplaced attempt to please God through man-made works. 
And so he reminds them, Galatians 1, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, here it is, according to the will of our God and Father. You were saved according to the will of God. And he reminds them that becoming a Christian was initiated by God. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. I love it when in the Bible, inspired words call people names because then we can get away with it. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How did you become a Christian? Because you were walking along and the Spirit of God changed your heart. You didn't ask for it. He just did it. We are begun by the Spirit. And of course, just to drive these nails in astronomically, Paul gives us one of his great statements on the fact that salvation is wholly initiated by God. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 contains this great Trinitarian discourse which explains the role of God the Father, the role of God the Son, the role of God the Spirit in our salvation. I'd love to spend a long time here, but I just want to highlight for you. Here's the Father's role. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be blameless, holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And why is he doing this? Is it to highlight the intellectual greatness of mankind and those who might choose by their own free will to come to faith? No. Verse 6, he does this to the praise of his glorious grace. If you chose God, God gets no glory. God will never do that. Why were you saved? Verse 11, chapter 1. We have, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What, what does it mean, the counsel of his own will? Very simply, God tells himself what to do, and he told himself to save you. That's why you're saved. And he had to do this work. You couldn't do anything about it. Look with me at Ephesians 2. Why could you do nothing about it? Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But graciously, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. A little digression here, but it does make our point stick even harder. We say this all the time here. As a Christian, what are you expected to do? You're expected to obey the Lord, to, to obey his commands. When that means doing good things, doing right things, doing the things God has called you to do. Let me ask you a question. When were the things that you were to do planned? When did God plan them? Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good works that you're to do have already been prepared. How can this be the case if salvation was entirely your choice? If that was the case, you know what that means? That means there is a heavenly warehouse filled with the unaccomplished good works of all who rejected Christ. That can never be. God had to be the singular cause of your salvation because what were you like before God intervened? Ephesians 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, yes, I will make a decision to come to God, even though it's futility, darkness, I'm alienated, I'm ignorant, and I have a hardened heart. Not possible. Oh, and remember those generous and faithful Philippians. What would God teach them about who does the work of saving them? Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Right near the end, verse 29. 
Paul is going to give credit where credit is due. All glory goes to God for salvation. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Why did you have faith to believe it was granted? It's a word that means bestowed, gifted. Someone might say, well, yeah, I still had to meet God halfway, right? I had to do some of the work getting saved. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. If you believe you had to do some of the work, that you had to make a decision. Colossians 1 verse 21 I had to decide to finally turn my life around. I had to decide to start being good. Really? Colossians 1.21 And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And who did the reconciling? Verse 22 He has now reconciled. He's the one doing this work. Well, I still went looking for God and then he found me. That's the uh, classic belief. That God responded to my desire for him. Chapter 1, verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great are among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God chose to make it known to the saints. Why did you hear the gospel? Because God chose for you to hear it. And in your salvation, he canceled your sin debt. He canceled it. By the way, when did he cancel your debt? When did that happen? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 13. When did he cancel the debt? And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your debt to God was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, it is finished. He said, wait a minute, I wasn't born yet. Exactly. You know what we call that? That's grace. God gives a direct statement of his singular work. Paul explains it. 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Thessalonians 1, rather. A couple of pages over. Direct statement of his singular work. I don't really know how much more direct you can be. I don't know what's difficult to understand about this. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I I am not a rocket scientist, but that seems fairly straightforward to me. You know what the prevailing opinion is? Is that, well, what that really means is that God chose you after you had chosen him. Is that what it says? No. It says in Greek, by the way, you are his selection. You are his selection. When you go through the grocery store, does that can of tuna jump out into the aisle and say, I want to be selected? No. Can of tuna is dead. The tuna is dead. (laughs) And you pick it. You are his selection. Paul is just as clear later in the epistle. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. After expressing the certainty that God will keep your salvation secure all the way to glory, he gives a promise. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's faithful. God called you to salvation. And he will keep you in salvation. And now Paul gives a succinct explanation of how salvation came about. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Very simple explanation. In a few brief words, he gives three major pieces of what it means to be a Christian. You can pick them out here. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here are the three pieces, and here's the order they come in. He chose you to be saved. Ephesians 1 says that's in eternity past. He sanctified you by the Spirit, set you apart, opened your mind to understand And at a moment in time, you were empowered by God to do what? Third step, you believed the truth of the gospel and you were saved. Now Paul gets very personal about God's intervention to save him. I'm not as transparent as he is. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. He's going to be very, very personal, very transparent, very open about how he should have been the last one to be saved by God. 1 Timothy 1, 13 
Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul received mercy. He wasn't seeking Christ. He wasn't seeking anything except to persecute Christ. How did Paul get saved? You remember this. Acts 9, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. A light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Try preaching free will to Paul. He will laugh in your face. Yes, Paul received mercy. But maybe... Maybe in Paul, there was just some little glimmer of faith. Maybe there's some little thing that God said, look, there's something I can get a hold of. There's something I can use. Maybe that's what happened. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. When did God intervene? When did God give you grace? 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 tells us, That God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Wow, your sin debt was nailed at the cross 2,000 years ago, but when was grace given to you? Before the ages began. Paul emphasizes exactly the same truth in his opening statement in Titus. Turn to Titus 1. We get this powerful, power-packed theological bedrock declaration Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised when? Before the ages began. When did your salvation, when was it promised? Before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This makes God totally sovereign over salvation and once again, the challenge is, surely in the little leather of Philemon, God won't go, uh, or Paul won't go down this road of theology. He makes sure even Philemon understands that his former slave Onesimus was saved by the grace of God according to God's plan and his sovereignty. Verse 10 of Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul calls himself Onesimus' father because he's the one who led him to Christ. And then in verse 15, Paul ponders in very humble terms the sovereignty of God. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than the bondservant, as a beloved brother. In other words, God planned the running away of Onesimus. God planned Onesimus to meet with Paul. God planned that Paul would proclaim the gospel to Onesimus and God planned that Onesimus would come to faith in Christ. That was his plan all along. What did Paul do? He labored to bring the lost to Christ. And what did Paul believe? He believed in the sovereignty of God over salvation. Listen, that's the example we follow. We follow the example of Paul who prayed and proclaimed the gospel burdened with tears in his eyes and scars on his body for the sake of the lost. But he also trusted in the complete, perfect plan of God over salvation. And we have no choice then to trust the Lord because the knowledge of who must be saved, who will be saved, and who cannot be saved, who will never be saved, that's too much for us. It's too awesome to behold. It's, it's beyond what God created us to know. And so we have to return to where we began. We have to return to Paul's declaration. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Instead, what do we do? We pray for the lost and we let him take care of the rest. My prayer for you is that your prayers for the lost will be faithful, will be fervent, will be urgent, will be filled with your heart toward God for the lost. And my prayer is that God's sovereign work and salvation in your loved ones that you're praying for and we're all praying for, that his work will be accomplished. And then we will rightly give God what? Glory. It's all his. None of it is ours. 
Our Father, we thank you for this time and as we approach the Lord's table now, how briefly we spent just a few minutes in your word and yet you're so very clear that we trust your sovereign work of salvation and yet we are to be about the business of seeing the lost saved, of praying for them, of of beseeching you and begging you and pleading with you and urging them with the message of the gospel. And Lord, we boldly proclaim, we boldly pray and ask that you would save the lost among us. I know this is a lot to ask, Lord, but I would pray that every name on those boards in our back hall would stand someday saved, forgiven before God, and we would rejoice together And they would give thanks to you that you moved us to pray. We thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, now as we come to the Lord's table, we would remember the dear price that had to be paid to purchase our salvation. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.